Hey friends, welcome to the Victor Marks Podcast with Victor Marks, founder of All Things Possible Ministries. Welcome to the show where we bring you real conversations faced with life's hard truths, stories of redemption, and the latest from the front lines. Whether you're on the road, getting your day started, or finally settling in, we've got an exciting new episode planned for you. So let's dive in to today's show. Well, welcome to the Victor Mark Show today. This is Jeff Teagues, the Chief Operating Officer and, dare I say, right-hand man for Victor Marks. I'm filling in for him today, and it is my honor to have a discussion here with a very special guest. He's had an extensive military career. He is now retired after 34 years of military service. He is, and I don't use this lightly, the living legend, Command Sergeant Major Michael Hall. So we, we tried to film and tape an interview with Victor earlier, and there were technical difficulties, which actually made my day, um, because even though we're going to talk a lot about Sergeant Major Hall's history, I have a personal history with him, and there are some things that I would like to share with him how, as a young teenage man, he impacted my life. So we've got a really fascinating show coming. Please stay tuned with us at The Victor Mark Show. All right. If you haven't already heard, I'm here with Command Sergeant Major Michael Hall. He has over 30 years service in the U.S. Army Special Operations. He's been the principal advisor to 10 general officers in times of war and peace. Some of those include some well-known names like General McChrystal and General Petraeus. In fact, it's on my little cheat sheet here, Sergeant Major. McChrystal has said you are the best soldier he has ever known. So you were inducted into the Ranger Hall of Fame in 2015. Are you still currently the um, Honorary Command Sergeant Major of the 75th Ranger Regiment? I am. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a great honor and uh, it's great to still be involved and try to help wherever I can. Well, we're, we're really interested to hear about your history. Like I said in the prelude, there are a few things that I'm, I'm looking forward to sharing with you. I, I, I don't think you can even fathom how much you've impacted young men through your uh, through your career and then hearing where you are now. So let's let's start right there and dig dig right in. Give us your thumbnail sketch of your career and kind of what drove you to just stick it out as long as you did. Yeah, I joined uh, joined the army in 1976, grew up uh, in Lorain County, uh, Ohio, which is just west of, of Cleveland. I wanted to be a professional football player, but I soon to come realize it really wasn't that good. Uh, college really wasn't an option. I grew up on welfare. Uh, so even, even, you know, little scholarships here and there, we're just not going to cut it. You know, back then college was not, a, it was not that big of a deal. Uh, it, it was still sort of a thing that you joined the military and you served. Uh, and, and that's what I did. You know, my uncle served, my stepdad served. That's, that was, that was a culture of Northeast Ohio. It was, it was quite common. Quite a few uh, folks in my class went off went off to the military. That was just something you did. Uh, but that, that was a culture of the area I, I grew up. Uh, wanted to, uh, always wanted to be a Marine infantryman. Uh, went and saw the Marines, signed up on delayed enlistment. Uh, you know, this is 1976. I walked in, I volunteered to be a Marine, I volunteered to be an infantryman. This guy thought I was crazy. If they had done your analysis test back then, I'm sure he would have given me one. So uh, w- walked out and... Uh, some uh, a major was standing outside in his khaki smoking a cigarette outside the army recruiting station. Saw me come out of the Marines. He goes, "What do you want to do?" I said, 
want to be a Marine infantryman. She says, ah, we got something better than that. We got, we got Army Rangers. I said, what's that? So he took me in and he showed me a bunch of films, which I realized later were a bunch of films of the 82nd Airborne Division <laughs> because the, the Ranger Battalions were at that. This was really, this is, this is uh, late 75 and the Ranger Battalions were, were just a little, were right out a year old. So nobody knew anything about them really. But, uh, so I signed a bunch of papers and then I was, I was underage. So I had to get my mom to, uh, to, to sign the release. And she said, ah, you're not going in the army. And I said, nah, this is just so the recruiters can talk to me. So she signed it. And uh, then I, I joined the Army. Uh, I went through basic and AIT. Uh, some buses showed up for guys to jump on to go to airborne school. My name never got called. I said, oh, wait a minute. I'm, I'm going to be an airborne ranger. Drill Sergeant looked at his list again. He goes, no, you ain't. You're going to 24th Infantry Division. I said, what? So he went and got my contract. And I finally decided to read my contract. And sure enough, that's what it said. So... Headed to Fort Stewart. Uh, I was at the replacement detachment. Uh, a guy named First Sergeant Gary Carpenter, uh, who ended up being the first uh, Ranger Regimental Sergeant Major, showed up uh, with a couple of staff sergeants and said, who wants to be a Ranger? I raised my hand and said, yep, that's what I joined for. So I, took the, uh, I took the old, uh, there was actually, the Army back then had a bunch of different kinds of PT tests. And one of them was the Ranger PT test, which was really for Ranger school. And uh, so it was a five-event PT test. It was a one-mile run and, I think, sit-ups and run, dodge, and jump and overhead ladder. And and that, that exercise where you, you bend down and you – we call it beat your boots. I don't know what it's called. So we, <laughs> we did that. So I did that, and that was my uh, selection assessment in, into the Rangers. And uh, so then I, I showed up, went to A Company, eventually obviously went to – you know, then immediately went to Airborne School and – it, 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 was, it was quite a reception integration. I, I walked in and, and uh, Sergeant Brooks, my squad leader, gathered the whole squad around and and uh, sort of laid out, laid out, you know, what the rules were and, and what we did. And he said, you know, we're a starch and spit shine unit, which is a big deal back then. He goes, you know, you know how to spit shine your boots? I said, no. So uh, he sat down there and he goes, well, I'm going to show you. So he shined one of my boots and we had issued five pair of jungle boots back then. So, uh, the rest of the squad shined up, you know, the, the other uh, shined up three of my pairs and the other two pairs were going to be field boots. And he goes, you got it. And I said, yeah. He goes, you know how to sew. I mean, we're an airborne unit. You know, we don't wear, we don't wear any pin on stuff. So now I don't know how to sew. So he, he sat down and, and sewed on my rank and, and my wings and all that. And in the, and uh, we, we were issued eight sets of uh, the old OG 107s, but they were camouflaged back then. And the rest of the squad sewed up my uniforms and he says, you got it? I said, got it. He says, uh, do you know how to iron? I said, I don't know how to iron. So he showed me, you know, see, we're, this is before you, you, you took all your stuff to the cleaners to get starched. And he, he shined, a, he uh, uh, starched up one of my uniform and the rest of the squad starched up the others. And we talked about some other things. And, and I mean, it was just, and, you know, that, that kind of, you know, and then I wrote home to my mom. Of course, she didn't really have phones back then. Nobody had phones. We were, there were six of us living in a two-man room. And uh, the only, you know, you didn't have cell phones or anything like that. Everything you owned had to fit in your wall locker or two uh, cardboard boxes. They were like two by three by four foot. And uh, I wrote my mom and and I said, you know, you know, Mom, I've just met the ten best friends I've ever had in my entire life. I mean, that was that was the initial impression and and uh, and the reception that I had. 
Now it, it was a very physical. It was very very physical back then. The, the the tour of duty back then was only eighteen months, and that was for several reasons. One, it was Abrams' charter to move out, but two, it was just very very physical. We were known as the Dixie Cup Battalion back then. I mean, it was sort of use you use it up and throw it you know crumple it up and throw it away. Well, I I hope we're not over glamorizing the life of a ranger. So so far, you've learned how to spit shine your boots, sew your uniform, and and press it. You know, but you know what, what I find fascinating is up until that reception and, and integration, your my story is almost identical to yours. Sa- same idea. I, I, my, I had my paper, my parents signed the papers when I was 17, had no idea what the Rangers were, but, but here's what stands out to me, Sergeant Major, is you were different than a lot of the other NCOs. And I, and I, it was, I recognized it, but I, I didn't understand. And you did tell us this. You told us that when you came to the Rangers, you were received into this organization uh, and welcomed. Whereas by the time I get there in 1987, 1988, it was like we had to prove ourselves every single day. You, I, I was not received into the squad. You were already the first sergeant of Alpha Company. And you were like the one guy that was trying to build this teamwork and this this immediate gelling of of, of all the new guys. Um, can you can you talk a little bit about that, or and even some of these things? Maybe we can exchange a few of these things that I learned as a private that stood true all the way to the day I retired as lieutenant colonel, and some of these things you learned as a private that and you retired at, at the highest position that. That that any NCO, I mean, the sergeant major positions that you've had, I mean, handfuls of guys through our history have have held those. Yeah, like I said, you know that 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 you know that initial reception integration, you know, just shaped me on on how I thought leaders should be uh, act and, and how you know because I, I was never really in, in in good shape. I played a lot of sports, but you know, no matter how tough the run was or how long the foot march was. You know, I never fell out and it really, you know, part of it was physical, but it was more because I just didn't want to let, let these guys down, let my leaders down because of the way I was treated. So I left in, uh, uh the end of 82 and I was a weapons platoon sergeant, weapons platoon sergeant and Intel sergeant before I left. Then I came back in 85 and, uh, was, was a platoon sergeant in a company and, you know, so I just assumed that the same kind of reception integration was going on when I got back, you know, sometime during that time. And, and what people don't realize is every squad, platoon, company, battalion was different on, on how they treated people. It really was. And so I just assumed that's that's what it was. And, you know, I, I didn't think, you know, I thought we had the same kind of reception integration when I was when I was a rifle platoon sergeant there in a company. And I had some squad leaders that I trusted that I, I think completely understood that. I mean, the the sergeants really took very seriously taking care of their guys and you had to meet the standard and they made sure you met the standard, you know, but it was done in a smart way. And, uh, you know, then, then you kept hearing, you know, what, what you described as, you know, the, the, uh, the, the hazing that went on for lack of better word. And, and that's really what it was in, in many, many cases, because somehow along the line, we had, we had lost the understanding that, yeah, General, General Ravens was very specific that there would be a, a right of initiation uh, and passage to get into the Rangers. He thought that was very important, but that's not what he envisioned. He envisioned, you know, similar to, to what I experienced, you know, so, you know, 
you try to talk to people and you try to explain, you know, I try to tell people my story and why I was still there and why, you know, I, I had lasted so long in the Rangers when so many other people had fallen by the wayside or gone to different ways, how important that was. And uh, so, you, you know, I just try to do that and, and treat people that way. And I think you could, you know, you could make a certain effect. But I remember one time the colonel coming down and something had happened and wanted to know, what, you know, why, why didn't I know what was going on in my barracks? And, you know, I just looked at the colonel. I said, very simply, it's because they don't want me to know. So I grew up in the barracks, you know, I, I know where they hide all this stuff. You know, I, I think I know what's going on, but, you know, I, you know, this, this is sort of a tough nut to crack. And it's not something you can just tell people what to do. You just have to go and try to change a culture. And uh, I think eventually we, we probably did because, you you know, leaders would change out and, and they would know the right things to do. And they would realize just because it was done to me doesn't mean they're going to do it to other people. That wasn't the right way. So. Well, I, I can tell you, Sergeant Major, per- personally, you created a, sp- a space for me. So, you know, there, there's a couple guys that stood out, you know, I'm, I'm sure you remember Harvey Moore yeah. from B Company or C Company. Now, I, I don't know how, you know, Har- Harvey was a hard man. And I remember back then that was the ultimate um, compliment. You know, Teagues is a hard man. You know, Hall is a hard man. Harvey was a hard man. So I, I don't know how it was in his company, but he he took me under his wing when I was a young soldier even though I was an A company, he was in a different one with the best Ranger stuff and, and really, really developed me. Yeah. And w- with you specifically, I tried on these different hats, you know, so, I, you know, you, you saw the tough Rangers and, and how they were just kind of aggressive and, and there was that hazing involved. And I tried that on uh, for, for like a week and it just, it just wasn't me. Like I wasn't happy. You know, I was pretending that I was this, this Ranger NCO that I was supposed to be. And it, it wasn't it wasn't who I was. And you you gave that example as the first sergeant that there was a place to be reasonable and professional and and continue to hold with those standards. And I'm telling you, Sergeant Major, that's that's something that I have taken with me. I mean, to this day, I hope the people that I work with in all things possible also, also recognize this. Yeah, we've got standards. We uphold ourselves to standards. But there's no reason for me to get upset. There's no reason for me to yell. There's no reason for me to make life difficult for you to, to, pro- to prove yourself. And, and honestly, I, I can't overstate how much of an impact you've had with me. And then I hope there are dozens, if not hundreds, of young men and women that now have carried on that tradition that you clearly established while I was there in ACO. Yeah, you know, somebody told me early on that you know nobody follows a you know nobody follows a leader that spazzes in garrison. If you're <laughs> if you're if you're spazzing garrison and you're always yelling and screaming and losing your mind, nothing nothing coherent comes out of there. And it's you know I think it was first Sergeant Fox you know once said he goes he goes stop yelling into the microphone. Their voice amplified. They already they already figured that out. You know, and and that was that was just a, a good lesson. Uh, and you know that I always looked at you know. Leaders that were calm, cool, and collected, and leaders that were spazzes, and, and leaders that were spazzes, you know, were, were never effective, and they didn't. I mean, when you ask people to do the really hard things in life, they got to respect you, and if, if you're just yelling and screaming, then then you know that tells you that they really don't know what's going on. They're just they're just reacting. They aren't thinking things through, and that means that your butt's probably going to be in trouble because they you know they can't settle down to, to tell you the right thing to do. So I, I always try not not to be that person because. 
you can't be you can't be a different garrison soldier and a different combat soldier. You know, it's it's the same thing because you know pe- people do things people do the really hard things in life because they respect you, not because they fear you. And uh, you know, I think that's that's one of the things that got lost in, in some of that some of that integration or, or you know the the, the poor integration that, that a lot of people went through. So I I ended up having a, a break in service there. I I did five yeah. years and then I went I got out and went to college. I I did I turned into that bitter ranger. I wanted to go to to the unit. I, they did they wouldn't accept me because of my eyes and you know I, I got all frustrated. You know I can't have my way. You know so I I I left in a huff and it wasn't long for me to realize that I just I missed the life. I missed the people. Um, I ended up coming back in '97 as as an officer and by then. You and General McChrystal were just taking over the regiment. I was in the officer basic course at Fort Benning when uh, when I think you guys came in at the same time. Did you precede him or did you guys yeah. both come in? Okay. Yeah, I came in under, under I did a year under General Lazinski and then and then uh, General McChrystal came in. So I was there for a year before he got there. So what one thing I wanted to I've always wanted to ask you was you know, even when I got out in 92, we were largely the Vietnam era, you know, Rangers. I mean, everything, everything was the same. By the time I came back in 97, things were beginning to change. I went to second Ranger battalion, which I, I couldn't tell how much of second battalion was just a different culture. You know what I mean? Like there was much more of an independent thought, you know, there was, there's a lot more experimentation, you know, compared to first Ranger battalion, but there is no question that you and General McChrystal modernized the Rangers um, from that the the late '90s even to where they are today. Can, can you can you fill me in a little bit on how much of that was, you know, an intentional drive, or you know, how how, how did that feel for you to, to create a modern force that has been incredibly successful over the last twenty years on the battlefield? You know, it, it's a lot of people involved, but the last thing I did. When I made Sergeant Major uh, before leaving First Ranger Battalion was was yeah I was the LNO uh, NCO and we didn't have an officer at the time I don't know uh, Kevin Owens supposed to come in but he didn't come in when he was supposed to come in or or maybe you know that's just the way the time works so I was the LNO for a while at First Ranger Battalion and, and that's where a couple operations were, were going on and I spent a lot of time up at our high headquarters at Fort Bragg and it really dawned on me, you know, what the perception of people of, of what the Rangers roar, which, which was not my impression of them, but you know, you are what you're perceived to be, not, not, uh, not what you think you are. So when I, when I, when I had a chance to come back to the regimental sergeant, I said, we got to do something to change that. So, you know, for, for one, for, you know, one of the first things I, I was able to do was, was to, was to take all the, all the policies, all the SOPs, uh, the, the tax op, the readiness SOP. I mean, just about every single thing. And we rewrote them. And when I meant we rewrote them, the non-commissioned officers rewrote them because we were able to, you know, convince General Lazinski that these are the guys that got to execute them. You know, you, you, you know, if, if we think what we're doing is important, then we got to get it to the guys that after they have to execute it. Yeah. It's, it's important for the staff officers to do that, but most of them haven't done what they're asking and telling other people to do. So, you know, and, and the old, you know, the old way of, of rewriting stuff was you get a tasker down and you send over, you know, who was available, who you didn't really want, you know, to do that. And, uh, you know, I, I knew the regiment very, very well. And I said, no, you're not giving me Smith. You're giving me Jones because Jones is, well, you know, Jones is our best squad leader. That's right. That's why I want Jones, because he is your best guy, you know, and we'll figure that out. 
So, you know, that was a significant change in thinking of, of breaking away from what, you know, what you call, what you, you know, very correctly was the old, the old Vietnam era uh, idea of what Rangers were. And then when McChrystal came in, you know, we, we really sort of looked at, we asked higher headquarters, we said, what, what do you want us to do? And they didn't really have a good answer. They really didn't. And uh, so, you know, General McChrystal, you know, really sort of came up with, you know, okay, this is what I think Rangers can do. And that was, that was to conduct an airfield seizure in, in a denied airspace, which, which a lot of people said they did, but they really didn't. You know, the, the division didn't do that, not because the paratroopers weren't capable, but they just didn't have the assets that they needed, you know, the air assets and, and the other things that they needed to be able to do that. So, you know, we, we fell in on that and then we fell in on, on you know, ironically, the, the Special Operations Combined Act, combined Arms Raid. And then the, then we, we, we got higher headquarters to say, OK, yeah, those those are your two main tasks. And then from that, we said, OK, what do we need to do those? And what do we need to maintain a standard? And that's when we came up with the big four. And we and we truly took the regiment back to basics because, you know, one of the things we looked at at, at the unit, you know, and at the end of the day, I mean, the unit is very, very good at the basics. They really, really are. And, you know, and the, the self-discipline that comes there. So we thought that was really a good model for us, you know, at, at a different kind of level. So let's take it back to the very basics and let's be good at that. So when higher headquarters says, you know, is looking around for an organization to do something that, you know, that that's no one has ever done before. No one's ever trained before. They can look at an organization like the Rangers and say, you know, here's your mission. You're really good at the basics, figure it out. You know, and we had the opportunity to do that several times. So that's, that's, that, that was sort of the change there. And that was sort of forcing things from the bottom up because higher headquarters very seldom can tell subordinates what they want to do because most of the time they have no idea what they really do anyways, what the capabilities are. I mean, they see reports, you know, they come down for a quarterly training brief. They go out for a can to watch a can training exercise, but they really have no idea of, of what's, what's inside that organization. So, you know, we, we put together a, a pretty good effort to, to show them, you know, what our true capabilities were you know, uh, to break those perceptions and, you know, and that's, that's where resources came from. I mean, that's, you know, we suddenly, I mean, we were, we were, we were the first unit in the army to completely, even, even, even before the special mission units, we were completely outfitted with night vision goggles for every single person. And that was, you know, nobody else had done that before. And, uh, you know, so, so some of the things like that. Yeah. A, a buddy of mine said once, you know, when, when we talk about special forces or special operations, you know, that, we understand what that means, you know, kind of doctrinally in the way you apply that, but it, but it, it immediately kind of drives a wedge with, you know, conventional military. So what's so special about these guys? You know, like we should, we should change the name of special forces to guys that do the basics really, really, really well, you know, but it doesn't fit on a tab, doesn't make a good patch. But I, I thought that was a really profound thing. And again, I've taken those lessons everywhere that I've that I've gone from from Rangers in, into the unit and even to ATP trying to distill down to what 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 are our core competencies you know because that ends up driving who we're even looking for to bring into the organization you know and and, and trying to measure measure our outcomes so our major one of the things that I that I find interesting as, as we're talking and you know I would I would really like to invite you to to come in and join us tomorrow for another show you've got the time for that I do yeah uh, all right I would enjoy that. So I I don't know if we're even going to get there tomorrow, because what I'm what I'm always more fascinated with with people 
is their founding, their grounding, you know? So like we, we are talking about you as the regimental sergeant major, but the, the things that I'm always fascinated with is, is what, what were those foundational experiences that people had, you know, even like with General McChrystal, I've read General McChrystal's books. They're fantastic books, but oftentimes when we're talking about general officers and, you know, command sergeants, major, we're talking about the end of their career. And, and to me, the things that have been the most lasting impact were those things that I learned in my, in my, my, my first few years, small unit tactics. So when we come back tomorrow, uh, I don't want to shortchange the audience with your experiences at the, at the highest levels of influence with the U.S. military and the campaigns that we've had overseas. But uh, just warning everybody, I continue to default to small unit tactics and what made Sergeant Major Michael Hall so successful throughout that career. So again, you were listening to Jeff Teague's filling in for Victor Marks, and our special guest was... Command Sergeant Major Retired Michael Hall. Tune in with us tomorrow to hear more of his story on The Victor Mark Show. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. We'd love to stay connected with you and invite you to the conversation beyond this podcast. You can check out more of the work we're doing around the world at victormarks.com, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all linked in the show notes. Be sure to drop us a comment in the review section if today's show has impacted you in any way or if there's anything you'd like to hear more of. We're always encouraged to hear from you. Thanks for spending your time with us. Until next time.